Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And in the last mini-series, we covered the Franks. And in the history of Germany, it's actually a dynasty of Saxons that would take the East Frankish Empire and turn it into what would become the Holy Roman Empire. And I haven't really introduced the Saxons as a people yet. So first, we need to catch the Saxons up to where we are with the Franks. And this episode will first cover the history of the Saxons, and we'll move on to the Saxon side of things uh, up until we left off with the Franks and then continue on with the history of Germany from there. And the Saxons first turn up in history as the Saxones, north of the Elbe, on the Dittmarish coast, kind of near near Denmark. And the word Saxon could either come from Sax, like Sax, or Sax, like, like a sword, or a going all the way back to like a stone knife, um, potentially. And Sachsen could be the short form of Sachsnotas or Sassnotas, the sword's people. And there's a nice little legend to go along with where they started from Vidokint of Corvi, who I'm going to mention as a... I've already mentioned him as a source before, but now he's a really important source. Um, he was a Saxon chronicler in the in Otto's court, so we'll, we'll get to all that. But he wrote in a legend... Um, so first of all, of course, there's there's the theory that they come from, you know, the Danes and Scandinavians, which is genetically correct. So that's good. Um, but then there's also the legend that they come from the Greeks and that, quote, the, the Saxons were the rest of the army of Alexander the Great, which had, you know, spread itself across the whole world after Alexander's death. And there's another great legend. Let me tell you a story here. So way back when... When the Saxons still lived in the Hartz Mountains and had a tough time of life, they did not yet know war. The Saxons were a peaceful people and just kept to themselves, busy with their herds. But the time came when the peoples around them started to fight each other. Refugees came to the area and spoke of violent acts of war. And there, the imaginations flared and herding suddenly seemed really boring. And the young Saxons wanted to go to war. And once the refugees had left, the Saxons said to themselves, how about we start learning how to wage war? We have no leader, and the original text says Führer, ladies and gentlemen, no one that can teach us. And so they went on a full moon to a holy forest, and there, at the source of their gods, offered sacrifices and begged to the invisible ones for a <clears throat> Führer that would teach them the art of war. Suddenly, they heard a horrible kraken. Oh, by the way, I can't use the word Führer like that in German. I have to figure out a different word. 
uh, Anführer, maybe, or something. Anyways, <laughs> suddenly they heard a horrible crack and thunder and white fog lowering over the spring. And as the wind cleared the air again, a group of men climbed out of the water, and the leader of which spoke unto the Saxons. My name is Ashanis, and I ask for your hospitality towards me and my comrades. When the shepherds took a closer look, they gawked at this heavenly figure, and especially his shiny sword on his left. Strange, they thought, that his right hand was missing. But full of joy, they cried out, Be welcome, you heavenly men. Stay with us as long as you please. But the priests there said, Certainly the single-handed is the one sent from the gods to teach us the art of war. And so they were happy and tried even harder to take in the strangers. And from the one-handed, everyone asked to learn the art of war. Their plea was heard. First they were taught to make short swords from stone, with sharp points. With great difficulty, the Saxons learned how to lead a sword and even swing a large club. They were taught swordplay. After a full apprenticeship in weapons play, Waffenspiel, that's how the Saxons roll, those Saxons marched off against their neighbors and were victorious and smote and subjugated all their neighbors. And finally, they were a mighty folk that had much esteem. Ashanis took the Saxons back to the spring and said, You brave Saxons, the time has come that I and my homies split ways with you. But first, translation my own, by the way, but first you should know who I am and where from my comrades come. We are from Asenheim, where the gods live and come to you. One calls me everywhere the Holy Tyr, or Tyr, whom the Fenris Wolf has bitten off the right hand. But you shall forthwith honor me with the word Saxnot. The end. That was Thor, by the way. Saxnold is the Saxon word for Thor, the god of war. You know, also an Avenger, but um, yeah, anyways. So, um, and who exactly the Saxons were is kind of a mystery. So we do have, there's the Cherusker that I mentioned in a, in a previous episode, the Falun. Um, there's the Barden, basically the Lombards that stayed back, could have been part of the Saxons, um, or kind of blended in with the Saxons. But later we have four groups, in Westfalen, in Westphalia, in Engern, in Ostfalen, in Eastphalia, and the Nordalbinga, which is really up by, by Denmark there. And there was never really a king. I mean, there, there was kind of a tribal leader or um, a family head, but no, no unifying king of the Saxons. And in what is today like Schleswig-Holstein, like really, you know, northern Germany up by the Danish border, they started to migrate and spread out from the 3rd to 7th century. And at this point, so we're kind of talking about a confederation here of Engern, um, Chalken, Cherusker, the Thuringer. It's not sure if the Saxons conquered their neighbors or joined together as allies. Maybe they joined up with the Franks and came from the north against the Thuringians, the Thuringer. Um, according to this version of history, they had an agreed-upon sign where they killed all the Thuringian Fürsts, the uh, princes, the uh, Fürst, yeah, all the leaders, with their swords at the same time. And a different story says that an internal conflict broke out and spread out the Saxon tribe. So they kind of split and spread out. Another theory says that the term Saxon can be seen as a loose definition of peoples between the Elbe and Weser over a long period of time. It didn't really mean much of anything until much later. And Marklo on der Weser, which is a river, 
um, speaks for a loose confederation of Gawe, like a you know areas or regions, like a county, I guess you could think of it. And these Gawe, these leaders, these counts, sort of, would meet as late as the 8th century, so when they were still fighting Charlemagne, at Marklo on the Vesa, Marklo on the Vesa, which can be taken that these Gawe were basically independent of each other um, and just made, met occasionally, maybe no political force at all, but still some sort of confederation where they helped each other out. And as I mentioned in the Frankish episode, they got closer and closer together to defend each other from Charlemagne. But um, the fact is, we don't have a clear picture of their organization from around 150 to 550 AD, like with any of the others. Uh, but there's another interesting thing in that time period, which is, well, first of all, the migration period. But for the Angles, Saxons, and Utes, um, that would be very interesting for us, at least for me, because that's part of my own ancestors. Um, because part of the Utes, Angles, and Saxons took off to Britain. And the Angles almost completely left what is today southern Denmark and headed off towards the British Isles. The Utes came from kind of north of the Angles and the Saxons, more, I mean, it's proper Denmark today. Some had moved off a century earlier to the Black Sea area, so just completely the opposite direction. But in the fourth century, they were joined by the Angles and Saxons and all went, kind of migrated to southeastern England. And archaeological evidence shows that the Utes left in great numbers. So in Utland, you can see there was kind of a depopulation. And while those peoples would have success in England, the ones that were left behind were eventually completely conquered by the Danes. And at first, perhaps, at least according to the story, King Vortigan of Kent, don't know what his name is in English, um, he invited the Angles, Utes, and Saxons to help fight those pesky Picts and Scots, the folks up further north. But um, instead, they kind of took over large tracts of England for themselves. And from the migration period and shortly thereafter, there's actually a better archaeological evidence of how the Saxons lived in England rather than Germany. And that's been handled in detail by Jamie Jeffers at the British History Podcast. He's even interviewed some of the folks involved in the find at Sutton Hoo, for instance. So all those, those early Anglo-Saxons. So just go listen to that. Now, obviously, the Saxons were important to England, too. But I, I want to get back to the continent. Um, well, okay, there's one more thing. King Arthur beat the Saxons. Anyways, so the migration period also had an effect here. The Celtic Britons were pushed to the western hills and their language was replaced with a Germanic one. It's, it's the language I'm speaking right now, in fact, is, is Germanic. So what is interesting here is that the Anglo-Saxons were converted to Christianity before the ones on the mainland. And the Anglo-Saxon would send missionaries to the mainland. The continental Saxons, we talked about last time, where, you know, that was a religious war for Charlemagne, because they were pagan still for centuries after. And we mentioned on an early episode with uh, Stephen Guerra from the History of the Papacy that some of these very important missionaries came from Anglo-Saxon England. And another interesting note here is the very first Christians were the Irish, Scottish variety, free from the papacy of Rome, basically just so far removed. Um, but in the end, the followers of the church in Rome were able to control the Church of England in this time period. And Wessex and Essex come from West Saxons and East Saxons, in case you never noticed that. And eventually, King Egbert of Wessex in the early 9th century takes over the surrounding kingdoms again. So uh, British History Podcast has you covered there. Anyways, Saxon dynasties died out for a while in England. First, the Danes took over, then the Normans put an end to the last Anglo-Saxon king. But don't worry, 
the United Kingdom's monarchy today still is as German as it was back then, the House of Windsor is really called Sachse, Coburg, and Gotha. So she's even a proper Saxon. And Robin Hood may actually show a bit of the distress of the time between Anglo-Saxons and their Norman overlords. And there's an excellent podcast on that too, by the way. Anyways, so the Old Saxon language is the precursor to Old German. And I mentioned that Old German, um, the language doesn't exist. It's a artificial, that's how we would construct, you know, differentiate, differentiate Old Saxon from Middle German, basically. But yeah, anyway, so Beowulf is Old English, and that's a very Anglo-Saxon language, still intelligible in Friesland or like, like Dutch people could probably figure it out. And it should be noted that the people themselves thought of the language of the Anglo-Saxons and Utes as English. But it's not today's English. It's much more like that Frisian dialect. If you want to break it down a little bit more, the Utes spoke Kentish, Saxish was spoken in Southern English, and Anglish was north of the Thames, in which Northumbrish and Murkish are subdivisions. But let's get back to the continent for real now. Okay, anyways. So, until Charles the Great, we have an independent, heathen, or pagan Saxony. But the Franks and Saxons actually go further back. So let me go further back once again before Charles the Great. So we already have that from Roman records in 285 to go way back. We have a report that they're plundering and involved in piracy with the Franks together, um, doing these kind of coastal attacks in Gaul and, uh, the, you know, the Roman Empire still then. And it wasn't until Diocletian that that whole piracy threat was wiped out. And in the 4th century, the Saxons were considered tough. The Romans would much rather fight other Germans all day than deal with the Saxons. And the Saxons survived after the Romans, so that must mean something. Um, but the Saxons played a role in another civil war in the 4th century. Magnus Magentius, who had a British father and a Frankish mother, used Saxon warriors in his uprising. When Constantius II met him in battle, many of the men he fought were Saxons. But eventually, Magnentius had to flee to Gaul and commit suicide. We, we just have a lot of sources of when the Saxons are attacking and, you know, plundering this and that. Um, for instance, 370 AD, Lower Rhine, against the Franks in the 5th century, when the Franks were against the Thuringia, the Thuringians in 531, and finally around the year 700, we have them in the area where Charles the Great would smash into them almost a century later, which is... Um, in the north, we can say that the Saxon border around that time was basically where the border of Denmark and Germany are now, roughly, from the Vesa on the North Sea. So central Germany and sort of, you know, follow the Ems River south. And in the south, the Mittelgebirge, the chain of mountains right in the middle of Germany and the Harz sort of form the natural border. So that, that central German region. And from the 7th century onward, the Saale becomes the border between Germans and Slavs. And the east, so you can follow the Elbe, let's say. And how about we say north-central Germany and be done with it, all right? Now, that's a marshy area, especially back then. Now it's not so much. But back then it was really marshy. Not a lot of the area was good for building settlements. It's, it's great now. I hope I'm not insulting anybody. They drained it all and <laughs> built canals and all that. But um, the northernmost stretches were hardly inhabited. And we see this with the Frisians also. It took hard work to drain the land, build the levees and the dikes and all that. 
to give you another glimpse of what this looked like, so the Saxon house, they had an Einhaus, a, a one house, a big central house, basically, in the middle of a farm court, like what they call a Hof. And it's kind of a combination of barn and a house. And some houses are kind of a dugout, like a semi built into the ground for insulation and whatnot. And the migration period, we find houses that are oriented east-west. And they're kind of like a longhouse. They're about you know, six meters wide, 23 meters long. Um, so pretty, pretty good sized. Could be 156 square meters, one example I found. And another interesting thing is that what they used to do, uh, starting in the 4th century and slowly, well, Charles the Great finally outlawed it completely. The Saxons would burn their dead before and then bury them. Uh, also like the older Celts too, like, the, you know, the think of the big heathen or pagan, I keep saying heathen, but the big pagan um, pyre. And, you know, later Vikings did the same thing. It's kind of the same religion, like Saxonot equals Thor. So a lot of the same, same practices. And also kind of like the Celts that we've mentioned before. At least since the migration period, uh, horses were buried with their owners. So it could even be a Celtic influence. That's, that's pretty late. But yeah, the horses were, were buried with the owners. And an interesting note is that the horses are not identical to modern horse breeds. Like they're, they're kind of an unknown breed, which I just, I thought that was fascinating. Um, but basically, so a really important person might have one horse laid underneath the person, like crossed, sort of, and another horse is sometimes placed as a pillow, and then a third and fourth could be apart from the corpse. So it's almost like a, a later knight that had more than one horse, more than like a battle horse and a horse for carrying his stuff and just a regular horse for riding. Um, maybe that's the case. I don't know. But I mean, it's just interesting that this, that this um, tradition goes way back. And this is basically at the same time as the Merovingian dynasty, in case you're wondering when we're finally going to get caught up. So for those of you that wanted to kind of keep the relative time, so we already have the Merovingians, the Franks in France. We've already talked about them in the Frankish episode. So this is that time. So they're, um, the Saxons are still just living their pagan life. And I do mention a lot more about their beliefs. I mentioned a lot more about, like, they did do human sacrifice and all that. But I talked about that in a previous episode when I specifically talked about Germanic religion um, as a whole. So Saxons fit right in there. So if you want to hear more, go back and listen to that. But I want to finally catch us up to what was it like to be a Saxon during the time of Charles the Great? And first of all, not fun. So one famous tale, and in fact, the title of this podcast is the Irmin Sul. And the Irmin Sul is, uh, it's like the Irmin Zoile, the Irmin's column. Um, it's also known as the Welt Zoile, the world column, as if the whole world was carried by that one tree. And we're talking about a gigantic tree. In fact, the Irmin Sul is a tree. And it is the most holy site of the Saxons at this time. And it was an abnormally large tree in a holy meadow, a hein. And in 773, Chuckles famously had it chopped down. And I know I have foreign listeners. Chuckles, I mean Charles the Great. Um, and he had it chopped down as part of his religious war. And this was, you know, this is the tree to Saxno, to the god of war, son of Odin, or Wotan in their case, uh, whatever, anyways. And I thought it was interesting that they, that they were forcibly um, baptized by the Franks, and like the Franks, actually, but, but they didn't just acknowledge Jesus, but they had to denounce their old gods right along with Satan. Um, and here's, so here's a quote that I found in, in one of my books. So, so instead of the, just the normal, I denounce all devil's work and words, 
They also had to say, and those of Dornar and Votan and Saxnot and all the unholy that are his comrades. So not just the devil and, and those things, but also pagan gods. And and the Saxon language is interesting. So the it's kind of the the biggest representation of any Germanic language is Old Saxon, which is the old precursor to Old German. And unfortunately, not a whole lot of that has been preserved. But one interesting work of literature is the Highland. It's the most famous extant text of Old Saxon. And this is an interesting work that portrays the life of Jesus from birth through his baptism by John the Baptist. This work has Jesus as a mighty Germanic Fürst. Fürst is the you know, word for prince. And the disciples as his noblemen in his court. I kind of imagine this like King Arthur a little bit. but the, And this story was written shortly after Saxon's conversion to Christianity. So anything that would remind of paganism has been carefully propagandized out. And uh, But some of the paganisms kind of seeped through, like death. Uh, like, you know, death, the personified death, um, it was changed to wood, and judgment fire was changed to mudspeli, like world burn. And at the baptism of Jesus, the, the dove sits on his shoulder, as with the raven on Odin, on Odin's shoulder. So there's that parallel there, which I just, that's awesome. That's just so cool. Anyways, and really the whole thing seems a bit Saxon. So Herodotus is in a big wooden hall at a raised seat and at the head of a table with rows of benches on each side. It's a beer hall. It's, yeah, so yeah, it's just a great uh, Saxon version of of, uh, the tale of Jesus. Love it. Okay, so here we we mentioned their wars against the Franks, but from the other side. So I left so much out in Charles the Great because I knew I was going to talk about this again. So here it is. Yeah, so Charles the Great basically had the Saxons surrounded on two sides, and then there's this the Slavs who are another, you know, Slavic languages is not a Germanic language. They cannot understand each other. They have a yet another religion, a different pagan religion. So they're just, just as weird and funny as the Franks are. In fact, the Franks, they could probably understand a little bit better. So the Saxons at this point were already building wooden castles at the time, kind of like think of palisades really, and using natural defensible places where possible. And in the open, they would have two lines of palisades, two meters apart. But the Franks came from the Ruhr, the Lippe, the Diemel, and the Saxons were indeed no match for Franks in open battle. And the first area conquered is Eresburg on the uh, on the Diemel, where he actually chopped down the Irminsul, the Irmins column. And 777, which I mentioned that battle actually, is, is uh, when there was a forced mass baptism in Paderborn. And the nobility is taught Christianity and all that. So I mentioned that on the Charles the Great episode. And now this is when Charles gets uh, sidetracked and goes off to Spain. So the Saxons revolt. And this happens for about five years. And here we have Vidokint uh, in Westphalia. So Vidokint, not the chronicler Vidokint of Corvi, but actually an ancestor of him, Vidokint, the great rebellion leader. Um, and I, I mentioned his, I, I kind of dropped his name a couple times on the Frankish episode, but here he is. So he, he's out for revenge. So when Chuckles is uh, sidetracked in Spain, Vito Kimt arms a rebellion. Now they actually, they get close enough to the city of Fulda that they actually have to move the remains of St. Boniface. And now Chuckles gets back from Spain. In his next war, so he makes the Grafs, the Grafschaftsverfassung. He makes the Saxon nobility Frankish 
Grafte, like earls. And it seems the nobility were on board with Frankish rule, but the people were not. So when Charles calls on the Saxons to help him fight the Sorbs, the Saxons end up attacking and decimating a Frankish army instead, which made Karl mad. And Vidokint flees to Denmark. Okay, so what I mentioned in the Charles the Great episode is that Charles would always come back and demand the guilty party. The guilty parties are in safety out of the country. So even if the Saxons wanted to turn them over, and sometimes they did, because the Franks would say, okay, we're going to start murdering your wife and children until we get the guilty parties. So at this point, the Saxons, if they could get Vidokint, they might even turn him in, but they can't. He's in safety. There's just nothing they can do. And 4,000, this is what's called the Blutgericht, the blood court, 4,500 Saxons, which is probably an exaggeration on the Saxon side, are either executed or banished from Saxony. The Frankish reforms then include the Frankish church, obviously, first and foremost, the Grafen, the nobility, uh, bringing Saxons into the Frankish fold, and a total repression of paganism and its customs, um, including human sacrifice and cremation. Forced baptism is now the norm. Protection of the church, protection in quotation marks, and getting the church its tithes, so getting, getting those taxes. And then there's all these law, these laws, like anybody that breaks into a church with violence to steal from the church or set it on fire, death. Oh, and if you don't fast on Lent, uh, death. And if someone is threatened by the devil by thinking a man or woman is a witch and eats people, and they therefore burn the flesh and eat it or lets it be eaten, death. Which, now that one, that that's, okay, let me back up there a little bit. Um... So yeah, so if someone, so basically they said this is, it's superstition to believe that you are, you have a hex on you, that, that you believe in witchcraft. Witchcraft is a very strong thing in German culture. Even the Amish and, and Mennonites have, have certain aspects of this old superstition still left over. Um, so it's, it's just really deep in, in German like folk tradition and folk religion, let's say. So if, if you accuse another person of witchcraft, you yourself would be put to death. And accusing was just one thing. Um, if you want to take matters into your own hands, then one way you could do that apparently is to burn the flesh and eat it or let it be eaten. So there's, um, yeah, so there's, yeah, so there's some cannibalism involved there. Um, death. It's a death penalty if you do that. That's my point. Okay. Whoever kidnaps his lord's daughter, death. Which, okay, I mean, yeah, sure, why not? And whoever murders his lord or lady, guess what? Yeah, ye that's right. And all children have one year to be baptized. Trying to hide this from the priest is, which, by the way, that's, my family would have been put to death, because, yeah, anyways. But trying to hide this from the priest is 120 shillings for nobility, 60 for free men, and 30 for lite which I'm just going to leave undefined because I have no idea. I guess that's uh, indentured servants or maybe slaves. Christian cemeteries, not pagan burial grounds anymore, and hand over the seers, diviners, over to the churches and priests because you got to give them up. They're, they're being put to death. 
And basically, Saxons led a 30-year terror campaign because that's that's all. I mean, they were freedom. I don't want to say terror campaign. That means something very specific these days. Uh, but they were freedom fighters. They were just trying to gain their independence back because the Franks were harsh. They were tyrants. I didn't, I kind of downplayed this in the Frankish episodes, but they were brutal. They, they were, you know, mass conversions and then made them also follow very strict uh, Christian laws, much stricter than later. They had to make sure they're all Christian first and then let up the reins a little bit. It actually kind of reminded me of the old Spanish missions in Mexico and the New World, like ser- like being whipped back and forth from and to mass. I'm not kidding. I, I think that comparison is very fair, actually. So that happened to the Saxons. Uh, the-, the thing that didn't happen to the Saxons was smallpox, but that's another story. Anyways, the rest of the time, so yeah, 30 years of revolt, it, just, it was just bloody. I mentioned in the last, in this Frankish episodes that, yeah, was every winter the Saxons would come and take back what was theirs, and then every summer Charles the Great would have another campaign, and every winter he would leave a garrison, and that garrison was like the Alamo. I mean, they would, they they must have known they were going to get killed, but they would hold out as long as they could, and then, get, you know, sure enough, get killed, and then that would be Frank, uh, that would be Charles the Great's excuse for revenge the next spring. So it was just it was just the cycle over thirty years over all of Charles the Great's life. Anyways, the rest of the time Saxons are just trying to raid and steal and you know hide, just just hinder the Franks in any way. And eventually, Vidukint is caught and baptized, and Karl has a festival in Rome to celebrate. And I think it says something for the Saxons that every year, Karl would come into Saxony in the summer. And every year, the Saxons could hardly defend themselves and would instantly submit. And then every winter, when Karl went to his winter quarters, the Saxons would just come back and do it again for 30 years. So Chuckles starts to get smart. I don't know why this didn't come to him earlier, frankly. I I know why. I don't want to oversimplify. But um, Chuckles starts to winter over in Saxony to really just stop this from happening. And Chuckles builds a whole system of roads and courtes, like this whole economic courts. Um, and a, and a, a courte, or court, basically, was split into two parts. It was the Roman rectangle and then split in half. So one half with a living and economic quarters, and the other with the garden where troops could stay in times of war. So it's, it's uh, yeah, so I mean, courts in the term of a, of a building. And these courtes were some 15 to 30 kilometers apart. So now he just he just had Saxony locked down. He had little regional police stations, basically, is what it amounts to. And from the courtes out, the land would be worked and making it easier to supply the troops. So Heisterberg on the Deister and Benigseburg are examples of these. In fact, Burg, many Burgs come, could come from this. Okay, now the courtes often also evolved into the seat of bishops or the core of newer towns, like the Der Platz der Altesten in uh, the, the place of the oldest, the Domburg in Hildesheim, the cathedral burg in Hildesheim, or the Ballhof in Hanover, so the, the downtown core area of Hanover. And even then, the Saxons just wouldn't quite stop. And finally, huge portions of the Saxons were relocated to other parts of the empire, just like the Romans did before. And I mentioned this before also. Now, Frankish bishoprics were founded, and this time in Saxony, we have Münster, Osnabrück, Paderborn, Minden, Verden, and Bremen. And then, after Chuckles' death, the Slavs came. 
the the Wends, the Venden, Ventland or Wendlin, I guess, uh, by Hanover, got its name in this time, as did towns with its and of at the end. Um, you know, that's Slavic. So the Wends are Slavic. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna come back to the Wends. Uh, I'm gonna. They're gonna get their whole episode. So right now, I'm just mentioning that they exist. So uh, yeah, d- sorry, but uh, so Slavs came into. Um, Germans and Germans ruled Slavs. And so if there's a town with its or of in Germany, it's, it used to be Slavic at one point. And even more dangerous now are the Normans. They come in this time, like I mentioned before. And now fast forward a little bit, 880, Normans have a massive victory over the Saxons where their leader and the cream of the Saxon nobility was killed. And of course, this is the time of the Hungarians too. That's coming in the next episodes. And because the Saxon armies were sucking at winning against external threats, the power became more and more concentrated at the local tribal level again. But that's, okay, we'll get there. That's 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 coming down the road here. Um, another place names I wanted to mention, if, if like in Braunschweig, uh, if if there's any Itte or Te or De, those are some of the oldest Saxon place names, or with Leben at the end of it, or like or Thuringia, Jutland, and the in in yeah the oldest ones are like Leiba, Leva, Leve, and since around 100 AD maybe also Leben, and that suffix meant that the property was inheritable. This it's that simple, and then there's also Büttel. Uh, which is Old Saxon, and Old Saxon was Bodel, like it meant a house, a, a house court, like a farm court, kind of. But the reason I brought up this kind of collapse really briefly was that one of these tribes rose up, and the Luidolfinger, for one, welcomed their Frankish overlords. Without their Frankish uh, reign, they became a powerful and respected Saxon family branch. And the ninth century, Leodolf marries off his daughter to Ludwig the Younger, the son of Ludwig der Deutsche, Louis the German, who I mentioned last episode. Real quick, um, but so a, a Frank, obviously, but uh, I'll, I'll come back to him. And his son, Brunn, led the Saxons against the Normans. Okay, now his other son, Otto, is already able to let his son inherit huge areas throughout Saxony, which is later... King Heinrich I. All right, so now I'm jumping. That's Louis the Fowler. Just a second. So the Louis Dolfinger, okay, they're now again Saxon, Saxon dynasty, are also a owner of several Grafschaften, like counties. Okay, so now you know the old um, German eagle with two heads? Think yellow background, black eagle. That goes all the way back to the Franks, but especially Otto I. So we, we start to get that really old German symbol. And so we have the time of the Saxon Kaiser, the Saxon emperors, which is going to be the focus of next episode. So hold on, we're not there yet. Now, during this time, the Saxons started to build stone castles, bergs, like fortresses. And we see these these dense settlements in the shadows of these bergs, and also in the shadows of monasteries. And some of these bergs castles were important fortifications for bishoprics and those burgs offer protection for marketplaces and a market and this time was a place in the road where a market church was built not much more so Gosla, for instance came to be next to the mill Kaiserpfalz which is the imperial residence and the mines and Hildesheim came from the front burg that protected the dome the uh, cathedral burg the uh, yeah it's specifically the castle fortress protecting the Andreaskirche, the church of St. Andrew, and the old market. 
And Verden, Gendersheim, Wunstdorf, and Hameln came to be from those charters in that time. Now, the, the, the power of this dynasty centered around their possessions in and around the Hartz Mountains. It's still an important area for the history of Saxons, and you can still go see a lot of traces from this time there. But we're jumping ahead a little bit now. It's time to get to the part where the Saxons finally rule Germany next time on the History of Germany podcast. We are an Agora Podcast Network member, and the podcast of the week is Royfield Brown's 10 American Presidents. And if you want to hear more on German history and don't want to wait for my next episode, why don't you go take a walk around Berlin with Voter from Walrus and the Bear. It's a great podcast I recently discovered. And uh, it's so he's a tour guide and he lives in Berlin, but, but the podcast is in English. And so it's really great. And he has uh, fantastic guests and, and brings you, takes you around Berlin. Um, if you find it on iTunes, be careful. There's, there's, it seems like there's two feeds, so find them both. On um, one feed, you, there's just an episode about uh, the Jewish community in Berlin, which is fascinating, but he has more episodes on, on an older feed. Um, yeah, definitely go give that a listen. And until next time, vielen Dank fürs Zuhören und bis zum nächsten Mal. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.